Good evening, everybody. Nice to be back. It's been a while since I've been here. Always love coming to the center and seeing how thriving it is. So, um, so we'll sit together as normal, and then uh, I'll um, be giving a, a little talk around the theme of my new book, Make Peace with Your Mind, How Mindfulness and Compassion Can Help Free You from the Inner Critic. You may have noticed that little voice inside. You might notice it in your meditation. Just notice how you may talk or label thoughts or ideas. The, the tone of voice that you hear in the meditation is one reflection of the, this inner critical voice. So, um, so let's sit together for a little bit. So anybody new here to the New York Insight? Yeah, welcome. So establishing posture where you can sit at ease, upright, relaxed. Taking some moments to settle your attention into the felt sense of your body, the felt sense of sitting here, touching the ground through your feet and legs, sit bones. Allowing yourself to arrive, inhabiting this moment, this body with awareness. As we begin our practice, just noticing the place from which you begin. What's the quality of the body, the heart, the mind? What's the quality of your attention like? Orienting with an attitude of welcoming. Welcoming your experience, physical, emotional, mental. Welcoming sounds appear and disappear in awareness. Welcoming the sensations of breath which may be your support, your anchor in the practice. So allowing that tending to 
the physical experience of the body, sitting, breathing, listening, to be your ground, your tether into the present. And then, of course, the attention will wander, will stray, will space out, will get lost in thought, very normal, very natural. And without judgment, and without judgment, we simply notice. Notice the habits and tendencies of mind. And we commit, we reestablish awareness over and over in this moment, this unique passing breath. Staying present with a curious and kind attention. Abiding in awareness in this knowing quality of attention, moment by moment. I'll close with a poem called What is to Come. I will sit and wait for a long time for the sight of the snowy owl hurling through the trees like a spear. I will sit and wait for the dusty red fox with his tail of flames to prance through the snow untouched by the cold. I will sit and wait while red tail hovers motionless above the crest of the hill while waiting for the perilous movement on land. There are many things in this life worth pausing for. The sun breaking through the dark clouds, the wind assaulting the maddened trees. For the one who is yet to reveal themselves, to step out from the shadows, from the cold places, where the soul hovers for protection and safety. What is it you wait for? For your life to be different than you imagined? What if all that lingering was in vain? Imagine releasing the burden and for once stepping into the chalice of your life that was waiting for you to drink from its silvery depths. I was just uh, being interviewed before this class and the interviewer gave me this poem and said, I want you to read this poem for the interview. And it's a poem that's one of yours. And I said, that's not one of mine. He said, I think it is. It's on your website. (laughs) And then I read it. I said, oh, I think that might be one of mine. (laughs) That's the second time that's happened with a different poem. I found out one of my poems made it into some 
compendium of poetry. And a friend said, oh, your book, your poems in this poetry book. I said, no, it isn't. I never gave anybody permission for my poems to be in a book. And I read it. It's like, no, it doesn't sound like mine. Oh, actually, no, it is mine. That is mine. So anyhow. So um, we'll take a break, and then we'll come back for a talk. Um, There are books for sale. My book that I mentioned, Make Peace With Your Mind, is available. Happy to sign copies, and happy to say hello to you in the break. So, um, anybody got an inner critic? (laughs) Anybody a little hard on themselves? Judgmental, a little fault-finding, a little oriented to the negative, to the faults, to your faults, or maybe you turn the critic outwards and get pleasure in nitpicking and fault-finding everybody else. So, I don't have one, of course. I just write about it, just you know, for the welfare of all beings everywhere. Um, no, when I first started practice, in, uh, I was young, I was 19, and um, was very confused and very unhappy and angry, and uh, and the, the anger and the hatred was going all kinds of different ways. And mostly, I thought it was going outwards, to you know, I was just rebelling, and as young folks can do, and I was angry with the government and the corporate system and all of that. And so I was raging against the machine. I was an anarchist and a punk, and I was squatting, and I was part of an underground movement in London. It was, it was fun and radical. And, but I was pretty angry, and I was tortured and unhappy. And I thought that all the problems lay outside of myself. Like, if we only just changed the system, then I, we would all be happy. Well, we know about that. Um, so... But I, I, um, I happened to be squatting this uh, Buddhist housing association house uh, in the east, rundown east end of London. And uh, being Buddhist, they didn't kick me out. They just, you know, were nice. And uh, <laughs> said, why don't you go check out this center around the corner where you can learn to meditate and, you know, look at yourself. <laughs> I didn't say that. <laughs> I don't think. Anyhow, so I walked into the center and I was uh, profoundly affected by the people there. They they just had something different than I'd come across before. Presence, some clarity, some some embodiment, and I, and some some sparkle in their eyes. And I and I immediately recognized something, even though I didn't know what it was. And so I started meditating to find out what were these people up to. And I learned the practice of mindfulness and the practice of loving kindness, and which I've been doing the, since for the last 30 years. And as you know, they're very revolutionary. And one of the revolutionary things about them is it, it, we turn that lens of awareness to look at our own mind, to look at our own self. 
and to see what is actually the cause of our anguish and our dis-ease. And one of the things I noticed was this tyrannical voice that I hadn't really, it's not that I was unaware of it, but I didn't, mindfulness helps us take a step back from our experience and see it more clearly. And over time I began to see, well, this judging voice is really, really harsh and critical and mean and ruthless. And I began to see that that actually was so much of the cause of my anguish. Not the only cause, but one of. And so I feel really indebted to the practice of awareness and the practice of loving kindness, which is a profound antidote to the critic. I think that the people whose house I was squatting were also happy that I was squatting. I eventually moved on. I ended up moving into a meditation center. So, and then, you know, for the last 15, 20 years, I've been teaching a lot, Spirit Rock and the West Coast and, and all over the place in different countries. And as I worked as a therapist and a coach and worked a lot with students one-on-one. And I've similarly noticed that this phenomena of the self-judgmental mind uh, is really pervasive and uh, I would think, I would say epidemic in its proportion in terms of how much it affects and impacts people. Maybe it impacts meditators more. Maybe that's why meditators, that's why people come to meditation because they're, you know, harangued by this critic. And so, so I talk a lot about it. I talk about the need for compassion, the need for awareness, the need for clarity. And at some point, more recently, I thought, well, it'd be useful to write about it because it's such a common uh, issue. And so this book came to me, and as they do in the middle of the night, uh, and I decided to, to to write it, and um, as a way to help other people find peace with their own minds. So, so we know this critic in, in, in many ways, in many forms and, and, and guises. And, um, and I'm always curious to ask uh, whoever I'm speaking to, what are your names for your critic? Okay. So what, what do you, what do you, how do you refer to this nagging voice in your head? So I call it the critic, I call it the judge, but what do you call it? Anybody? Shout out. The tyrant. The tyrant, yes, the inner tyrant. That's a good one. What else? Because when we hear the names, we, f- we hear different flavors of the critic, different dimensions. The bad witch. The bad witch, yeah. The bad witch, yes. When I realized what's going on, I call it peanut. Peanut, okay. <laughs> <laughs> peanut, that's very endearing. <laughs> <laughs> when you're in the mood. <laughs> and when you're not in the mood, what do you call it? <laughs> uh, my shadow. Shadow. My, well, I call it like a sea that I'm drowning in. Uh-huh. A sea that I'm drowning in or a shadow. Uh-huh. Yeah. What else? My mother. My mother. <laughs> <laughs> I have to say that it consistently comes up every group that I teach. <laughs> I hear my mother. 
much less my father, actually. In fact, very rarely I hear, okay, thank you, my father, yep. <laughs> Do I hear? Forgetfulness. Forgetfulness, uh-huh, yeah. So. Aha, uh-huh. so the, the, the voice of authority. Aha, uh-huh. yeah, the voice of truth in this world of, which is quite apt since we're living in the world of alternative facts. The critic is definitely an alternative fact, which I'll say more about later. Uh, any other names? Fun to hear the names. The perfectionist. The perfectionist, yes, the perfectionist, yes. The bully. The, not, the good enough committee, yeah. <laughs> My favorite is the itty bitty shitty committee. <laughs> it just about kind of sums it up. The killjoy, the underminer. My favorite is the inner saboteur. Sabotage is our well being. The what? Me again. Me again voice, yeah. So we get to hear these different flavors, right? Each, each of these names, words, symbolize something for us, right? And so we have different, different members of that committee, right? Some more developed than others, right? The taskmaster, the driver, the bully, the, you know, you name it. So, you know, this is not, um, news to anyone, and certainly if you've been cultivating awareness, you'll be s- familiar with this tendency in your mind. And this is not a new phenomenon. You know, when the Buddha was meditating back way back when in the forest, uh, as we do, trying to understand his himself and his mind and reality. And at some point in the journey of his own awakening, that voice of Mara, the voice of Ignorance and unconsciousness came to him and said, as he was you know, close to really waking up fully, and that voice of Mara came and said, what did Mara say? Who do you think you are? Who do you think you are to be sitting on the throne of awakening? By what right do you take this seat to wake up? Now, who do you think you are? Sound familiar? You may have heard that as a child. I certainly did. Don't be too big for your breeches, as we say in England. Be seen and not heard. Thank you very much. Um, right? So the Buddha, you know, this 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 profound voice of self-doubt, even in the cusp of awakening, can arise. And in response, as you know, the the story goes, the Buddha didn't get into an argument with the critic because that's a waste of time. And instead, he put his hand to the earth and said, the earth is my witness. The earth is my witness. This is, uh, this, I have every right to take this seat in this human body, in this human life, and to wake up. As we do, we have every right. The earth is also our witness to be here and to be fully who we are and to wake up and to own that to know that from the inside. And you'd think, you know, after awakening, the, this voice of, of doubt wouldn't, wouldn't surface for the Buddha. 
but it actually surfaced many times. I think in the text there's like 17 more times that the voice of Mara comes to the Buddha and, and questions and doubts and self-doubts. That's an interesting phenomenon that even after awakening that voice of doubt can arise. So it, it behooves us to pay attention, to get to know this voice or this committee or the boardroom or whatever you call it. You know, I was on a retreat uh, a few years ago teaching a course and uh, somebody said, you know, it's like living with, it's like in my head, it's like a bad college roommate. <laughs> Follows me around, it's just like on my case, you're judging, nitpicking, nagging, blah, blah, blah. And then later in the discussion, someone said, you know, it's not so much like a roommate, it's like a whole college dorm. <laughs> Just a whole group of them just have a whole list of complaints and irritations and, you know, and it can be like that. You know, know, the the critic can manifest in different ways at different times, in different guises, sometimes seemingly helpful, sometimes coaching, sometimes praising, but very often mostly blaming and judging and putting down. And the critic follows us around. So, you know, think about the time before you were meditating or practicing in the Buddhist tradition. You were just, you know, critic was on your case about other stuff. You know, maybe it was on your case, maybe it would would follow you to the gym, you know, and you'd look in the mirror and it would be criticizing how you looked or how healthy you were or fit you were. You know, and then you, you you come in here and then suddenly the critic wears a meditating hat and suddenly it's judging you for not being mindful enough, not being compassionate enough, not being kind enough, not being generous enough. On your case about your concentration in meditation, anybody give themselves a hard time about the practice or not meditating enough? Right? Those times that you don't meditate, the critic has something to say about that, probably. So we want to be you know, uh, present to the way the critic manifests and follows you around and has something to say. We want to be, so this is what, so the subtitle of the book is How Mindfulness and Compassion Can Help Free You From the Critic. We want to be uh, utilizing our mindfulness practice to bring awareness to this habit, this pattern, this tendency. What is this? judgmental voice. You know, and this isn't true for everybody. I, I just was talking to someone in the break who says, I don't have much of a judging mind. Uh, there are those rare individuals who are very lucky. Um, most people have some flavor or other, and some are very persecuted. You know, some it leads, it's a major cause of depression, major cause of unworthiness, major cause of low esteem, um, And so we want to learn about what is this voice? How does it appear? How does it talk to me? And then more importantly, we want to understand, do I give it attention? Do I believe it? Do I listen to what it has to say? Do I think it's true? Do I give it authority? And do I give it power because of all those things? Because... Ultimately, the critic is just a bunch of words in your head 
It's a bunch of thoughts. Just like any other of the tens of thousands of thoughts we think a day, it's just a bunch of words that we happen to believe and give a lot of status to. But it's not necessarily objective, true, helpful, or useful. Right? The Buddha, in, 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 in talking about wise speech, the Buddha talked about say what's truthful and useful. <laughs> and the critic is mostly neither of those. Although some would argue in the critic's defense that we, you know, if I, you know, and I hear this a lot when I give this talk and people I ask for questions and people say, well, if I didn't have a critic, I'd never get out of bed in the morning, I'd never meditate, and I would barely make it to work, and I wouldn't clean my house, and I'd just be a mess. And I say, well, maybe that's true. Or maybe we, you have other things like conscience or motivation or encouragement. or there's, you know, there's, there's all kinds of other places in us to, to support the things that we want to have happen rather than berating and chastising and threatening and undermining. So, you know, so as a practice this week, you know, be curious about this voice and, and, and how it appears and how often. You know, Joseph Goldstein, one of my meditation teachers on retreats at IMS, he would have me count my judgments in the day. You know, nothing else to do on retreat, you know, so, oh well. You know, 121, 459, 768, you know, just a lot. A lot, and after so after you get to so many, it just becomes kind of ludicrous. You know, just see how incessant and, and a little silly it is. So, how does the critic manifest for you? Does it manifest as someone said, the perfectionist, okay. always demanding that what we do, how we meditate, how we talk, how we parent, how we work, how we live? should be perfect in some way. Have you ever met a perfect human being? <laughs> Is there such a thing as doing something perfectly right? Not in my experience. We do it well and we do it as, as well as we can. But perfection in, in, in relationship to human beings, I don't think it's in the same way, it's in the same way we, to nature, it's not so relevant. It is what it is. We do it as we do it. It manifests, as someone else said, as the not enough voice, the not enough mantra, I call it. You know, that we're, you know, not fill in the blank enough. Right? What, what's your mantra of not enough? Maybe you're not smart enough, or mindful enough, or happy enough, or slim enough, or healthy enough, or rich enough or, you know, fill in the blank. It's probably in there. We live in, a, we live in a deficiency culture where we're oriented towards our you know, seeming uh, lack. So this is a very painful mantra because if we believe it, it leads us to a never-ending sense of wanting, grasping, searching, trying to fill that sense of scarcity. When is enough enough? I think it was Lao Tzu said something like, "Only those who, only those who have enough know they have enough." I don't know what he said. It was something much wiser than that. But anyhow, <laughs> um, so the not enough voice. 
Sometimes it manifests as the, the, the 2020 hindsight. The critic is very good at looking back at today, yesterday, 10 years ago and saying, can't believe you did that. Can't believe you chose that person. Can't believe you took that job. Can't believe you bought that stock or whatever. And it's very, of course, it's easy to look back and go, well, in, in, in hindsight, yeah, it's easy to see that these things may have been more fruitful or whatever. But we don't have that information when we're deciding on relationships or money or career. We do, we do the best we can. And so we have to be forgiving of ourselves. I came across a lovely quote the other day from um, Maya Angelou. I can find it. She says, it is very important for every human being to forgive himself or herself because if you live, you will make mistakes. It's inevitable. But once you do and you see the mistake, then you forgive yourself and say, well, if I'd known better, I'd I'd have done better. That's all. If we hold on to the mistake, we can't see our own glory in the mirror because we have the mistake between our faces and the mirror. We can't see what we're capable of being. I love that. The critic holds the mistake up in front of us, like in the mirror, and that's what we see, right? Which is which is a distorted perception. Right? It's taking something out of context, making it something more than it is. You know, it's not that we don't make you know don't make you know, don't do things that we regret, but it's how we hold that. And the critic generally holds us to an impossibly high standard where we shouldn't where there shouldn't be mistakes. So basically the critic is saying, it's not okay to be human. It's not okay to make mistakes. It's not okay to have foibles and idiosyncrasies and quirks. Right? And we're all a little quirky and wacky. Right? I mean, you can't help but, you know, as you become more aware to see how wacky the mind is and, and we are in our habits and we want to be happy and we do all the things that go in against the achievement of that. I mean, we're strange creatures. So, so to be curious, you know, as you meditate, as you go about your day, how does this critic operate? How much do I let it in? How much do I listen? How much do I believe it? So on, if I do longer workshops, I have people write out their judgments, their top 10 tunes which is a fun thing to do. I highly recommend you do that when you go home tonight. Just write out a journal, piece of paper. Just write out your top judgments. See what they are. Get them out from that murky you know, soup of consciousness and actually write them down. And then look at them in the cold light of day. Because the other thing that's useful, aside from mindfulness and compassion, is inquiry, investigation. We look at them and say, is this really true that I'm a bad, terrible person, loser, hopeless, unlovable case? Is that really true? <laughs> well, let me ask my spouse. Let me ask my best friend. It, it would, you know, let me get some reality check here from people who know me really well for a long time. Would they concur with that assessment? And I would guarantee you that they wouldn't. 
So we want to have you know, some inquiry and some investigation of, 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 of questioning the validity of these thoughts. I know it sounds terrifying to share your judgments with us. I have people share them in the workshop. And there's this collective wave of terror goes around the room, like, oh my God, my deepest, most, you know, secrets I daren't share. And, and then we share them. And it's like, oh, you got that one? Oh, I got that one too. Oh, yeah. It's the same old stuff. We're not good enough. We're not smart enough. We're not cute enough. Blah, 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 blah. Coulda, woulda, shoulda. It's human. Right? It's, sort of, it's impersonal in a certain way, just like all of our tendencies are. So an important piece to understand about the judging mind, the, the critical mind, is the difference between uh, the many factors, many faculties in our mind like discernment, like assessment, like oh, these are the healthy qualities of mind that we need to navigate life. Assessment, discernment, discrimination, evaluation, right? All ways that we, you know, inquiry and investigation, where we, we, we look at our experience and life and our performance and our work and our meditation, you know, and we bring some discrimination to that. We bring some healthy understanding to that, which is very different than the way the judge comes in and criticizes. So, for example, Say at the end of your meditation, you, you know, just look back and just you kind of like, okay, what was that meditation like today? And then you kind of just have some very simple assessment. You know, I was, I was focused at the beginning, then I got very distracted, and I got triggered by something at work, and I got lost in a long thought train, and it was hard to concentrate for the rest of the practice. And it's just a, norm, just a normal assessment. The critic comes in and says, well, that was crap. I mean, you were hopeless. I mean, your meditation was just a waste of time. You know, I don't know why you bother. I mean, it's really, you know, after, you know there's 20 years and that's all you can do. I mean, really? <laughs> right? And it becomes, it, 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 it's, it's, the difference is it's same data, meditation, assessment. One is an assessment of what happened. The other is an assessment of you as a person, as a meditator, Right? That you're somehow bad or wrong or stupid or less than because of what happened. So one is evaluating the process, one is evaluating the person. And the reason why the, 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 the inner critic is so painful and so destructive is because it attacks the person and our well-being and our goodness. It uses shame... As a, as a means to judge, as a means to condemn, as a means to try and change behavior. So the, the superego, which is the, the, the formative part of the, the critic, arises in early childhood using shame as a way to, to, to tame ourselves so we can fit in with our family and culture and society and norms and values. Right? We need a strong mechanism to fit in, to shut down some of those primal energies, right? emotions and passions. And so it's a powerful force in our, in our, in our psyche, necessary as, as a survival, uh, as a social being to survive the, the culture that we grew up in. But as we as we grow up and become independent, no longer we don't we don't need to shame ourselves in that way to function. But that that shaming mechanism 
pervades. And that's what we want to look at because that shaming that happens from judgment leads to collapse. Right? The critic may manifest verbally, you're stupid, you did wrong, coulda, woulda, shoulda, but the impact affects us emotionally. We feel less than, we feel deficient, we feel energetically, we feel heavy, we feel slumped, we feel fatigued. Uh, mentally, we often feel foggy. Right? So I know this a lot as, in a, as, a, as a writer. I'm sitting at my desk and I'm, oh, I've got a whole morning. I've got nothing to do but write. I love writing. I get down, I'm all excited. And then all of a sudden my energy flops and I'm feeling cloudy and I can barely write. And I'm like wondering, well, what happened? I was, I was really excited about the morning's writing. And then I remembered I'd showed some chapters to a friend yesterday who had some kind of snarky comment about something which sowed a seed of self-doubt that's niggling away with my, and my critics sort of churning on that self-doubt and suddenly the whole system shuts down. Does that sound familiar? Right? You, get, you, know, you get a performance review at work or someone critiques something you've done in your, in your work or your art or your teaching and 99% was great feedback and the one, there was one critical comment. <laughs> and what do we hold on to? Right? We have a neg- the brain has a negativity bias. It latches on to that which is wrong, that which is critical, that which is negative. And then we internalize it and we erode all the goodness and just fixate on the problem. This is distorted. This is dukkha. This is suffering. This is self-created suffering. So, hence, we need compassion. Again, the reason why the subtitle is how mindfulness and compassion can free you. Because we need compassion, we need kindness to also to hold ourselves with the pain of that. It's not easy or pleasant uh, to feel the pain of the critic. You know, I look back at my journals in my in teenage years and 20s, and it's just a journal of misery and suffering. And I feel a lot of compassion for that young man who just was so hard on himself, so unnecessarily critical and mean. It's painful. And a, and a radical shift that happened for me in my practice was when I was meditating one day and my critic was really, really aggressively on my case about something. And instead of listening to critic and agreeing with it and being kind of an ally with it, which is what we normally do, yes, yes, I am stupid, I did it wrong, I should have done it better. I instead was listened or felt how, how it landed in the heart. Right? If you imagine the, the ways that you judge yourself and you want to give yourself a hard time, imagine that your, a friend was saying those same things. Right? Imagine how painful that would be to hear that from the outside. Right? We hear one little thing from somebody and it's like an arrow in the heart. Right? But we don't realize those thoughts in our mind are also like arrows in our heart. It's, it actually is having an impact. It is painful and cruel to talk to ourselves in the ways that we can sometimes as we judge ourselves. And the more that we can feel the pain of that, as I did, the more I'm less likely to, to put up with that kind of talk. That's where love manifests as fierceness that says, no, I'm not going to talk to myself like that. That's not helpful. It's not kind. It's not fair. It's not truthful. And most of all, it hurts. Just as we wouldn't tolerate 
someone else talking to us like that. I mean, imagine like the bad college roommate, right? Imagine you had a roommate for a day and it was your critic. <laughs> and it followed you around like your critic does and just pointed out, you know, well, you know, you, you barely wake up in the morning. Well, you slept in. You're such a slob and you're too late to meditate. And look at your room. It's a mess. And why haven't you painted? You said you're going to paint, you know. And it would go on and on. And how long would you put up with that for? Ten seconds? A minute? And then you just say, uh, <coughs> excuse me? Um, <laughs> hello? Uh, thank you. That's enough. <laughs> go have a nice day. Bother somebody else. Right? But we strangely let ourselves talk to ourselves in very harsh ways. At times, often about the things we most cherish, like our parenting, or our art, or our body, or whatever it is that we love. It's another cartoon I wanted to share with you, if I can find it. So sometimes we have inner critics, sometimes we have outer critics, but I think working with the inner critic helps us also work with the outer critics. My critic is having something to say about the fact that I can't find the, the, <laughs> the cartoon. So there's a couple of people talking to each other. Really feeling my imposter syndrome lately. Uh, which is an imposter syndrome feeling like a fraud, which happens when we listen to the critic all the time telling us that we're not smart enough, good enough. If they only knew what I was like at my work, I'd be fired. If my partner really found out what I was like, I'd be, you know, they'd leave, etc. So this, and the person continues, what if I'm not as good as everyone says I am? And this other person says, what are you talking about? Everyone says you're the worst, including me. Unfortunately, we're not so blunt with each other, but we're, we would say that to ourselves. I think you're the worst. So how do we work with this? So we, we, we employ the tools of mindfulness, of awareness. We, we, we become cognizant. When are we just thinking and when am I judging? Am I believing it? Am I listening to it? You can count your judgments. You can feel how they impact you. So just simple awareness, naming them, oh, judging. And now I'm judging myself that I'm judging. And now I'm judging myself that I'm judging, judging. So we just become clear. Oh, it's just a mind state. It's just a thought. It's just a habit. And then we can use antidotes or replacement practices. The Buddha talked about metta, loving kindness, as a replacement practice, replacing an unwholesome with a skillful mind state. So I think the most powerful antidote to the critic is the loving kindness practice in that we're using words in the same way that the critic uses words, but in a way that's very kind and caring and warm and friendly. And so every time your critic says, well, that was a pathetic meditation, and you say, may I be happy? Yeah, but look at you, you're just such a loser. And may I be peaceful? Yeah, but you're never going to get your life together. I mean, just look, and may I be free of suffering. And you just keep saying phrases of kindness to counteract that negative 
neural pathway, which of course we've developed a very deep neural pathway over many years. So the meta practice also takes many years to reestablish that sense of goodness and well-being. So one of the strategies I think is most helpful is to find a have a sense of humor about the whole thing. Even though it's kind of depressing and not funny, it's also funny. Like the critic is a little wacky, just like we're wacky, and it will tell you to do something, and then it will give you a hard time for doing the very thing it told you to do. Or it will, it will give you options that are sort of impossible to, to achieve. Like, um, you know, it will tell you to... You know, both get up in the morning and do your practice because you're a lazy meditator, but also tell you you should sleep in and get more rest because if you don't rest, you don't work well in the day. And then so you, you hit the snooze button in the morning because you think you should be resting because the critic's telling you to rest more because you're so driven. And then you, you put the snooze on the alarm and you sleep in and then it gives you a hard time for sleeping in and not meditating. You're damned if you do, damned if you don't. So um, there's, this, there's this cartoon strip that I love called Rhymes with Orange, and it, there's a caption, there's a, one of the strips is called A Checklist of Feeling Pathetic. And this is kind of like the critic, and, and you know, some of them are like, one of them says, um, uh, choose someone and compare, and compare yourself unfavorably to them. <laughs> right, you come in here, someone's meditating like a Buddha, and you go, oh, God. I wish they would scratch or something. Just, you know, move. Um, and then one of them is, um, think about all the people you regularly disappoint. Right? And I add, especially people who share a last name. You know, uh, Look in the mirror and notice all the flaws. Right? So we do these things. And, this, and then the judge, is, is, it's peculiar in, in that we do these things and, and then suffer. Um, so, so we bring mindfulness, we bring, we bring loving kindness, we bring compassion to the pain of the critic, to the, to the vulnerability. The critic arises usually because we're feeling vulnerable. It arose when we were young out of vulnerability, out of self-protection. So notice what triggers your critic into being. It's usually some kind of vulnerability that there's some fear or threat that it's trying to protect you from. Some external criticism, some judgment, and so to have compassion for the vulnerability that lies under the critic, to, to, see, to, and to ask, well, what, is it, what is going on here? What is it, why is this arising? What is it trying to say? You know? So there's some kind of inquiry into the process. I used to, and I still do sometimes, Actually, for a book talk, I, uh, I bought one of those wigs, the judges' wigs they wear in England, you know. The, <laughs> and, uh, and, and actually, when I, when I was on retreat, I used to, I used to imagine my, ju- my judge like that, this English barrister, bad yogi, bad meditator, fail. <laughs> Bum with his gavel like this thing. You got a great bell, by the way. It's beautiful. So... Um, so if we can find a sense of humor, we can let me know. I mean, I, I noticed that my critic, and I think most critics are pretty predictable, they're a knee-jerk response to vulnerability or fear. 
So, um, you know, one of the places I notice it, it, it has... Uh, so organization is not my strongest suit. And um, so I lose things. I'm, can people, friends tease me that you know, I'm supposed to be a mindfulness practitioner, but I lose... You know, I, I think about I think of water bottles as just dana, you know, to the to the world, and um, my hats also dana, and um, my keys sometimes a little more problematic. And you know, I'm often you know on my way to Spirit Rock to teach a class, and I can't find my keys or my wallet or something. And I know my critic's going to have a, something to say about that. Like, shouldn't you, you know, you know know where you put things, Mr. Mindfulness. And I just laugh. I say, Mr. Mindfulness wins the day again. And I play with my critic. Oh, I say, thank you. I didn't know that I'd lost my keys and that I'm stupid. Thank you. That's really helpful. It's really going to help me find my keys. And so that, just like with mindfulness allows us to disengage, humor allows us to disengage. We want to find ways that allow to not allow the, the critic to sting, to land. Right? And over time we cultivate a sense of disinterest. The critic may never evaporate. Sometimes it does. I've seen it evaporate for some people with practice. But more, just like with the thoughts in our mind, we don't need them to disappear. We just need to find a skillful relationship to them. We need to find a skillful relationship to the judge. So I'm going to stop speaking now because I want to leave some time for some questions. But, um, yeah... Questions, thoughts, comments, shares of your own experience. <clears throat> Guess nobody has a critic, huh? Yes. <laughs> Been there, did that last week, and yes, yeah. Yeah. Did everyone hear the question? Yeah. You didn't hear the question? So um, the question was about, given how critical and the, the negative the critical is, yet we live in a culture that's oriented towards pressure to be positive. And what's, what's with the, the dissonance? Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> um, you know, one, it might be reactive. Um, I think the orientation to the positive feeds the critic because we, we're supposed to be a certain way. Like, you know, with, with TV and social media, there's this presentation of happy, extroverted, you know, shiny. And, um, and so it's just more fuel for the critic. You know, there's so many, we're just bombarded with these images of how we should be, how we should look, how we should be social, how we should, you know, whatever. And so it's just a whole new and extra criteria for the critic to judge ourselves. So I think, I think, I think there's a reason why the critic is so um, uh, 
extra loud these days. And I think social media makes it worse because there's this portrayal of the perfect life on Instagram or Facebook or whatever, you know. And then we have the mess of all our own lives and they're different. And so it's just so it can be fuel. Yeah. Yes, at the back. It seems like there's two ways to respond. Like one is more neutral and just letting letting that go, but, mm-hmm. but identifying, letting it go. And another is more active, potentially, where positively saying, you know, uh, the opposite is true, or some sort of loving mm-hmm. kindness. Um, could you tell me more about um, those two? Or mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah, I mean, there were, you know, there's, as I talk about in the book, there's many different strategies. One is, you know, mindfulness is more a non-doing, observing, allowing, and sort of letting it wash through. Right? It's one, one orientation. You know, the meta practice, compassion practice, more active. Right? Sometimes there's a place, as I talk about in the book, for a fiercer kind of love, a self-protective love, as we would... If someone was being aggressive and verbally attacking us, we would be like, no, stop, enough. Like, not helpful, not useful, not true. I'm not going to listen to this, right? And we can, that's also an appropriate strategy with our critic if it's very loud and oppressive. Um, so the idea, just as with practice, is we want to have a variety of tools and skills so we know how to respond in the moment, if it's a mild, innocuous in judgment, you know, we don't just let it go, you know. Or, you know, if, 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 if the critic is saying something predictable, I might just say, oh, please, really? Is that the best you've got to offer? That's <laughs> um, pointing out something very obvious. Um, or humor if I'm feeling stuck in it. And so, so the idea is we have a variety of both uh, Active and you know, and letting go practices and heart practices and inquiry practices, so we have you know some different capacity to, to meet it. Could I ask one more question? If it's short, could I ask one more question? Mm-hmm. Um, knowing that we can't change others, um, if there's someone in our life that um, that you feels like is very critical or has a strong critic, is there a way that? Um, You've, uh, like, we could... You give them the book as a birthday present. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, it depends on the person, the context, and the relationship. Yeah. And, um, But, you know, I think it is important to, uh, to speak to the outer, you know, to, to call out the outer critic. You know, like, if, if you're in relationship with someone... You know, and our critic will come out in relationship, and that's one of the places it comes out the most because it's a safer place. We want to we want to be calling that out, and we want to be confronting it, so we're not allowing the critic to erode the relationship because it's very toxic when it does, you know? and it's very insidious the way that it happens. You know, there's a way to point things out to our partners or children or family, in a way, or friends in a way that's constructive or there's a way to shame right and it feels very very different 
and one is constructive and one is, is poisonous. Yeah. So if, if, if you're on the receiving end of that, you point it out. You, you talk about how that landed for you. Right? Etc. Yes? How do you respond to a critic that says the world is falling apart and you're not doing enough when objectively you're not doing enough? <laughs> <laughs> hmm, anybody else feeling that voice? Hmm. <laughs> um, well, that might be the critic and it might also be uh, an accurate self-assessment. It doesn't have to be the judge. Could be just uh, you know reflection. You know that the, this, you know we're living in uh, you know politic times of political upheaval and crisis. You could say, and um, there's a lot to do, and we all have to assess you know what our response and, and is to that. Um, and again, it's, it's, um, that thought can come from the critic and it can come, come, come from a discerning mind, right? If it's coming from the critic, it has a shaming in it, which is you're a bad person for not doing enough and you should do more. And if you do more based on that voice, it's not going to be balanced. It's going to be guilt ridden. And you probably do it in an imbalanced way with slight resentment and maybe burnout. You know, there's diff- if you're doing it from December, like, wow, this, you know, this, 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 there's a mess that's happening right now politically and it doesn't feel like I'm doing enough. Well, that's a healthy reflection. Well, what do I want to do? Can I do anything? Do I have any resources and time? How do I engage? And that's a healthy question. I think it's a question that I am having and a lot of people are having. So just be mindful where it's coming from. And then you see the difference because the one will lead to to a kind of a to guilt and shame and a collapse and not act the, the thing about the critic is there's a great line from uh somebody let me see if I can find it. Uh this is oh yeah, this is from Janine Roth. I think this is apropos of your question. It says she says for some reason, we are, only, we are truly convinced that if we criticize ourselves enough, the criticism will lead to change. If we are harsh, we will believe we will end up being kind. If we shame ourselves, we believe we end up loving ourselves. It has never been true, not for a moment, that shame leads to love. Only love leads to love. Right? The shaming of the critic for not doing enough will not lead to constructive action. It will lead to collapse. Right? It's a healthy reflection of like, oh, I care deeply, I want to get involved, how can I get involved? We want to have all of our mental faculties available to help us strategize what the most effective response is. If we're guilting and shaming and shitting ourselves, we're not, we're, not optim- we're not functioning optimally in that moment. Right? So it's really important, and, and that could apply to the political situation, could apply to your parenting, could apply to anything in our lives, right? Listen to where the voice is coming from. Is it a shooting, shaming voice or is it a healthy self-reflection? And sometimes it's a bit of both and you just take out the judgmental piece and go, okay, where am I? And maybe I'd love to do something but I'm completely fried and overwhelmed already with two jobs and parenting and whatever else I've got going on and I just will, you know, stay informed. Or, no, I do have time and resources, and let me network and see what the best way to have impact is. Yes. 
Um, I wanted to comment on how uh, you were talking about sat down to write. Just a, uh, um, when you uh, noticed how you felt, uh, you were getting excited about writing, and then all of a sudden you started to feel heavy, and and you felt, um, yeah, I guess, some of the, the downside of some thoughts you had been having. And, you know, I think that was important to mention that because, you know, I often uh, am pretty in touch with how my body feels. But I'm often not aware of how it got that way, you know, like in that moment, you know. And then, so I guess my question is, you know, well, my first, my comment is thanks for mentioning that because that happens to me. And then um, then how do you, like, extricate yourself from that and, you know, like, like yeah. begin to, you know, move through your day with a little bit more energy, I guess. So you trace backwards. So, so you, you know, as I did, find myself sort of slumped and foggy and blah. And then I'll ask myself, if my judge was talking to me right now, what would it be saying? And it'd be saying something like, you can't write, you know. What you wrote yesterday was a pile of crap or something. So I'll, I'll trace, in, 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 that, in that story, it was remembering the judgment from my friend or the critique from my friend that caused the collapse. So I want to find, I want to, art, I want to articulate the judgment that's led to the physical, energetic, emotional blah. And then, and, then, and then analyze that thought of like, oh, I can't write, I'm a stupid writer, or I've got nothing to say, or whatever the story is. And then I'll, I'll inquire, is that really true? Is it really true I can't write? Well, apparently not, because I've written a bunch, and... You know, some people listen to it, read it, and you know, and so I'll, I'll use my you know rational you know reflection, and then other times I'll just get up, you know, just change the energy, take a walk, and and get physical. Sometimes I find being physical actually moves that energy through, and I start back again with a little fresher. But it's often catching the thought is is really helpful. Yeah. All right, I'm aware of time, so I'm happy to take questions after the fact. I'm happy to sign more books if anybody wants to have a signed book. Um, but thank you very much for coming tonight. Really, really pleasure to be here. I love teaching at the center. Um, love the work that's happening here, and um, thank you for your practice. And I uh, hope to see you somewhere in the Dharma Trails. I left some cards here. I do a bunch of nature retreats, and if you want to hear about more about my work, just go to my main website, which is markcoleman.org, and I'm doing a bunch of stuff everywhere. I'm doing, including a lot of stuff online these days. Uh, you have a lot of stuff, Spirit Rock, that's now being put online, which is really, really great. It's more accessible for those far away. So thank you. Blessings. Thanks. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.